0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, the book of Revelation, chapter 16, continued. Well, as we continue to examine Revelation chapter 16 today, we find that through the first nine verses, four of the bold judgments have been announced and poured out. They've so far been aimed at three of the so-called four elements of nature. And the four elements of nature, earth, water, fire, and air, that was thought to be the fundamental makeup of all material objects, along with a fifth element called ether that was believed to be the substance of the heavens and the, the spiritual world, these formed the basis of what could loosely be called science in John's era. And of those elements, the first four bold judgments have attacked three of them. Earth, water, and fire, the sun. And by the time all seven bold judgments have been poured out, all four elements will have been dealt with. Now don't think that the Bible is attempting to teach us this debunked Greek theory of nature. Rather, John is merely recording his vision as presented to him. And his vision is given to him in terms that he and others of his day can best understand relative to the time and culture in which they lived. So in the end, God's intended meaning is essentially the same for John as it is for us of the 21st century. It is that every aspect of the world we live in, everything that forms the basis of planet Earth and the life that lives on it, and even things beyond the Earth that are essential to life, all these are being afflicted. Yet we simply must not miss this. In the end, it all boils down to God's wrath addressing one thing, wicked humanity. It is humanity that is the subject of his wrath. Evil, rebellious humanity. And by afflicting the planet, he's judging mankind. Let's talk about that. And I'm I'm giving you notice, I'm going to be a little bit preachy today. This amazingly unique planet that we live upon, science calls it the Goldilocks planet, was created by God for the purpose of providing the just right conditions for the human race to live and thrive. Genesis chapter 1 makes it clear that God created the heavens and the earth, that He prepared the earth as the ideal habitation for humanity by first establishing all of the essentials for our care in exactly the right form in sufficient quantities that we might ever need. The ratio of dry land to the oceans, the abundance of fresh water, the variety and scope of edible plant life, the wondrous creatures that live in those waters and others that thrive on the dry land, many of which provide meat for our tables, the moderate climate and and the way that weather cycles work for our good, the moon, That has so much to do with the exact tilt of the earth that gives us seasons and drives our ocean's tides, and then the sun that gives us warmth and provides nearly unlimited energy that living things convert to food and to new cells, new life. All these things were meant to see to the needs of human beings. and yet the bible also makes it clear that the ultimate purpose for human beings is that we glorify god that's our purpose that's why he made us and we accomplish this through our worship and our obedience to him now i can quote you numerous passages as evidence for this fact but one has for me always been the best summation for the purpose of our existence. In the words of King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14, here is the final conclusion. Now that you've heard everything, fear God and fear His commandments. That is what being human is all about. For God will bring to judgment Everything we do, including every secret, whether good or bad. See, there exists a segment of humanity that does not glorify God, doesn't there? Apparently, the largest part. Therefore, this segment of humanity has not achieved its purpose for existing so is worthy only to have their existence terminated this is the process that we're following in the book of revelation listen to paul in his typical uncompromising language in romans 1 20 to 25. For ever since the creation of the universe, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen because they can be understood from what he has made. Therefore, they have no excuse because although they know who God is, they do not glorify him as God or thank him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking and their undiscerning hearts have become darkened, claiming to be wise, they have become fools. In fact, they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images like a mortal human being, or like birds, or like animals, or reptiles. This is why God has given them up to the vileness of their heart's lusts, to the shameful misuse of each other's bodies. They have exchanged the truth of God for falsehood by worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Praised be He forever. Amen. So as we see in John's Apocalypse, God is systematically separating the entire human population of the world who glorify Him from those who don't. He is saving the redeemed and he's destroying the unredeemable. And the unredeemable are defined as those who would rather worship and serve created things than the Creator. And because everyone on earth can visibly see God's divine nature at work and the marvelous creation that surrounds us all, then those who refuse to know God have no excuse for their choice. Therefore, even though ocean life is being destroyed in these judgments, and the sustenance provided on the dry land is being decimated by the bold judgments, and the essential sun is, is, that, that we must have for life, well, it's being turned into a fiery furnace to torment mankind. The fresh water that keeps us alive being turned into a blood-like liquid. It's not that God is angry with these created things. It's that He's angry with the created humans that have been given every opportunity To understand our true purpose, but reject it. One by one, God is taking a wrecking ball to the marvelous things He has created. And He's created them so that mankind can live and thrive. And it's in this way, in the book of Revelation, that He is judging mankind. But now in verse 10, God shifts his attention to the leaders of rebellious humanity, the devil and his human henchmen. Let's reread that portion of Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be on page 1547. 1547. So that's Revelation 16, starting at verse 10. The fifth one poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom grew dark, and people gnawed on their tongues from the pain. Yet they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. They did not turn from their sinful deeds, The sixth one poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs and they came from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. They are miracle-working demonic spirits which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited world to assemble them for the war of the great day of Adonai Zevaot. Look! I'm coming like a thief. How blessed are those who stay alert and keep their clothes clean so that they won't be walking naked and be publicly put to shame. And they gathered the kings to the place, which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo. The seventh one poured out his bowl on the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder. There was a massive earthquake, such as never occurred since mankind has been on earth. So violent was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babel the Great and made her drink the wine from the cup of his raging fury. Every island fled. No mountains were to be found. And huge, 70-pound hailstones fell on people from the sky. But the people cursed God. For the plague of hail, that it was such a terrible plague. The fifth bold judgment has as its target the kingdom of the beast. Who's the beast? It's the Antichrist. The kingdom of the beast is people, just as the kingdom of God is people. The beast's kingdom is unrepentant mankind. It is those who choose to wear the mark of the beast that unequivocally identifies them as Satan's followers. The fifth bowl is said to be poured out specifically on the throne of the beast. So the idea is that the sovereignty claimed by the Antichrist is being challenged as he is attacked by the Lord. Suddenly, the invincible beast that has awed the world gained billions of followers either through its miracles and wonders or or by coercion looks vulnerable. Nothing he can do can stop God's onslaught. It is said in verse 10 that the beast's kingdom became dark. The Greek word being translated into the English dark or darkened or darkness depending on your translation is skotu. And indeed some variation of the word dark is what that word means. However, the word dark was rarely used as a metaphor, just like we use it today that meant blind or evil or something that negatively affects the mind. Clearly that's the use of the word here, as the previous bold judgment, the fourth one, stokes the fires of the sun to unprecedented levels that will make the earth far brighter and hotter, not darker. The rather standard interpretation of this passage is that perhaps the earth is visibly darker due to the smoke that has been arising out of the abyss. Another line of thought is that darkness signifies the eclipse of the beast's power. Another quite popular view is that it's referring to the dimming of the economic and political power of in times Rome. I don't accept any of these because they're purely allegorical. Rather, since especially the bold judgments have many similarities To the plagues that God punished Egypt with, then we need to think in terms of the plague of darkness that He inflicted upon the Pharaoh's kingdom. In Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, Adonai said to Moshe, Reach out your hand towards the sky, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness so thick it can be felt. And Moses reached out his hand towards the sky, and there was a thick darkness in the entire land of Egypt for three days. People couldn't see each other. No one went anywhere for three days. But all the people of Israel had light in their homes. See, when we put on the mind of a Jew, like John, and we think in Hebrew thought, then we realize... That the concept of darkness that he has in mind comes from the Hebrew word choshek. Choshek. Now, choshek is, a, is the word used for darkness in this Exodus passage we read. So, choshek means darkness, but not like the darkness of nighttime. There's a separate Hebrew word for that, la'il. Now, la'il simply means the opposite of daytime. If we enter a room with no windows and the lights are all turned off, that's la'il. However, hoshek is inherently negative. It's a term that denotes a spiritual deception or blindness. In many contexts, like here in Revelation 16.10, evil is inherent in its meaning. So the kingdom of the Antichrist has just been hit with spiritual darkness to blind the souls of those kingdom members to God's truth. See, they can no longer repent. They can't choose God now. Because the capability to see the truth has been taken away from them by the Lord. Just as God sealed those 144,000 witnesses he sent back to earth to protect them from deception and darkness, the members of the kingdom of the beast have now been sealed, so to speak, from being able to discern truth. All hope is gone for them. The second half of verse 10 speaks of the people gnawing their tongues in pain. Now this is a separate statement from the first half of this verse. That is, it is not so directly associated to their spiritual darkness. Rather, as the beginning of verse 11 explains, this regards actual physical pain and agony of being tormented with the lack of nearly everything that's needed to survive. This term nod is in Greek, maseomai, and it is used in this same context in the book of Job, chapter 30. And it gives us a better understanding of the intent of the word. In Job 31 through 4 we read, But now those younger than I hold me in derision, men whose fathers I wouldn't even have put with the dogs that guarded my sheep. What used to me was the strength in their hands. All their vigor had left them. Worn out by want and hunger. They gnaw the dry ground in the gloom of waste and desolation. They pluck saltwort and bitter leaves. These with broom tree roots. That's their food. So to gnaw the tongue means that they are in physical anguish and mental depression because of their great Physical need, and yet, what is their response to their problems? They curse God. They refuse to turn from their sinful deeds. They refuse. To turn exactly defines the concept of repentance. To turn. Repentance does not mean that one merely says, I'm sorry. Repentance means to actively turn from one path in order to go on to another and different path. And why would the people of the beast's kingdom do such an illogical, irrational thing as to curse the God who holds complete sway over all these calamities that are destroying their lives? It's because these folks are under spiritual darkness. Choshek. They can do nothing other than shake their fists defiantly at the Lord of the Universe. Again, this reminds us of the Egyptian plagues with the Pharaoh. And in some cases, his court advisors, they did the same thing. Only in Exodus, this act was just called a hardening of the heart. Even when Moses brought disastrous plagues down upon Egypt unless the king of Egypt changed his mind and his ways meaning he repented the Pharaoh was unable to repent because God himself we're told had hardened Pharaoh's already hardened heart because the Pharaoh had already been destined for eternal punishment. So this is precisely the way we are to understand the situation here in Revelation chapter 16. Now to summarize, as of the fifth bowl judgment, humanity has been judged through the destruction of the oceans, the devastation of the land, the pollution of the drinking water, the impossible to bear heat of the sun, and now their misdirected trust in their anti-messiah to be able to save them that too has been destroyed the effects are global and the eternal fate of those who've taken on the mark of the beast thereby hitching their futures to the beast in his kingdom they have reached the point of no return now comes the sixth bull judgment The sixth bull judgment is poured out upon the Euphrates River. This allows some portion of its 1,800 mile length to dry up in order for the forces of evil, a huge army, to cross over it. The leaders of this army are said to be the kings of the east. Now, throughout history, rivers have been serious barriers. To the transport of goods and people and could be very problematic for armies. And in many cases, it remains so. Rivers were also typically used to define boundaries of territories and of nations. And in the Bible, nations to the north and east, above the boundary of the Euphrates, were usually considered to be enemies of God's people. And at times were labeled as the kings of the east. In the Bible, the direction east always has great significance. The temple in Jerusalem faces east. The garden of Eden was in the eastern part of the land of Eden. The Messiah will enter the eastern gate of the temple when he returns. The most important tribes of Israel camped on the eastern side of the wilderness tabernacle during the Exodus. And yet, as often in the Bible as east is the divine direction, we also find great tribulation coming from the east, as in Genesis, when some kings from the east in Abraham's day kidnapped Lot, and Abraham had to rescue him and fight them off. So the drying up of waters from rivers or even seas is spoken of in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. In fact, God's wrath that resulted from these halted flows of water were the subject. Conversely, we find God drying up waters to aid his chosen people. He dried up the waters of the Red Sea. For the Israelites to escape the Egyptians, he dried up the Jordan River so that the Joshua-led Exodus people could cross into Canaan without getting their feet wet. Here in Revelation 16, God dries up the Euphrates to open a pathway for the kings of the east to bring their armies out into the open so that God can slaughter them all. When studying God's word, especially when trying to discern unfulfilled prophecy, we will usually find that the best course of action is to consider God's already established patterns. In other words, how he's addressed matters in the past. And use that as the basis for how he will probably fulfill what he ordains for the future. And following this God pattern of drying up waters. Since the Lord long ago made a way for the destruction of Babylon by drying up the Euphrates in order for Cyrus' forces to cross over and attack Babylon. This is according to the Greek historian Herodotus. So now in Revelation, God's target is the destruction of the armies of Babylon the Great. And it follows that we find God drying up the Euphrates River once again in order to provide a pathway for armies to cross over and go into battle. It seems that the drying up of the Euphrates will be an irresistible lure to the nations to gather their armies in order to attack the last holdouts who defy the beast by refusing to take on his mark well next in verse 13 John says he sees three unclean spirits that looked like frogs looked like frogs, they were not frogs first off, since these are not actual frogs Instead, they personify falsehood and deception, which, since they are sins, are unclean. Now, notice again the connection to the plague of frogs in Exodus. Now, second, frogs are considered to be ritually unclean, according to the law of Moses, because they are animals that swarm. And we see these unclean frogs emerge. From the mouths of the dragon, Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the unholy triumvirate. So essentially, since the mouth is the portal of speech, and speech can destroy or it can build up, then the idea is that these three speak lies and deceptions. To get people to do Satan's bidding, I think it's instructive to notice that false prophets are in the Bible nearly always in relation to either Israel or to followers of Christ. That is, it is lies and deceptions within the body of believers and God worshipers that are mostly being spoken about. Clearly then the false prophet is going to try to influence those who believe in some sort of God's system and since we are, he- we are heavily warned about this then their primary targets must be Christianity and Judaism people who worship the God of the Bible what this must mean is that the false prophet will influence leaders of Christianity and Judaism to adopt false doctrines and beliefs within their ranks. One can only imagine that such false doctrines will be especially pleasing to the people. I mean, who adopts doctrines that are a turnoff? I mean, this shouldn't be hard for us to imagine. Because from the earliest times, doctrines, whether they're called traditions or customs or faith pillars, these have been created to draw people towards some particular person. Whether he's a a teacher, a, a leader, a holy man. You know, there's nothing wrong with doctrines that correctly summarize and explain the teachings and commandments of God's Word. However, too many doctrines are merely agenda-driven or they're simply taught by those who themselves are deceived don't realize that they're just part of a long-range plan by Satan to win over God's people in the end times by teaching them falsehoods. Matthew 15, 7-9 You hypocrites! Yeshayahu, Isaiah, was right when he prophesied about you. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. It seems as though every era introduces some new generation of biblical error. And very soon these errors become unquestionable pillars of that faith that are nearly impossible to reverse. And while I don't want to take the analogy too far, it might help us to be more diligent in the testing of our own faith doctrines against what the Word of God actually says. When we have a rather unsavory mental picture of unclean frogs emerging out of the mouths of pastors and priests and Bible teachers and seminary professors as representative of the lies and deceit that are sometimes taught instead of the truth of the Holy Scriptures. Now I'm not speaking about innocent error which happens to anyone who teaches most anything. I'm speaking of religious leaders being first and foremost beholden to groups and to sects and to and just dedicated to their list of rules, sometimes dedicated to their paychecks, rather than living and teaching God's ways, as presented in the Word. The point is this. Open your eyes. Look around you. Like most things in this world, new realities seem to change and evolve slowly, nearly invisibly, until a tipping point is reached overnight. I'm talking about the classic frog in the kettle proverb. (laughs) You know, over time, Jews were unwelcome. To a greater and a greater degree in Europe, but they grew used to it. Until one day, a tipping point was reached and the Holocaust erupted. Islamic groups around the world have been warlike and troublesome since the inception of Islam in the 6th century, but in modern times their attacks upon one another and upon various eastern Christian groups seemed distant. Seemed so unconnected to our lives until September 11th, 2001. Who knew anything about Islam prior to that? But Islamic terrorism didn't just suddenly begin that year on that day when it had never before existed rather its long simmering existence and its hideous nature just suddenly burst into our western consciousness through our tv screens in but one day it will i predict be the same concerning the false prophet of revelation that is going to have Such great evil influence within the world of religion, and especially within Christianity and Judaism. We are far along that journey whereby the church easily accepts new and modernized doctrines if they sound good to our minds, if they uphold our wants and our desires if they fit real well with the demands of an ever-changing secular society. A mere 40 years ago, no one could have imagined a Christian denomination, let alone several, that blesses and legitimizes homosexual behavior which God labels in both the Old and New Testaments as abomination, let alone performing homosexual marriages and ordaining homosexual ministers all in the name of Christian love. But now it's in vogue. And churches that do not accept this false doctrine are considered as lacking in love by the churches that do. The interfaith movement is ever-growing with their basic doctrine that all religions and their holy books are created equal. So it is arrogant, it's not loving for believers in Christ or for Jews to think that the Bible's any better than the Koran. And therefore Allah is really just another name for the God of the Bible, and that Islamic values such as Sharia are just as good and worthy as biblical values. I have no doubt that the stage is already set for the Antichrist and the false prophet to appear and quickly gain traction, because Christianity and Judaism are already well primed for it due to centuries of false teachings. Dimming interest in God's Word and the lax attitudes that result. We're going to just look up one day and some wildly popular religious figure that just bursts onto the scene and he's going to align himself with a fast rising political figure. And together they're going to call for a new global unity in both government and religion suddenly, overnight the world will understand that everything has changed and that this change has actually been in progress for quite some time our biblical compasses were long ago tampered with even set aside in favor of doctrines of convenience acceptance by the world. The Antichrist and the false prophet are not going to have to work very hard to win people over. People are already yearning for it. Not only that, says verse 14, but these three demonic frog spirits will be able to work jaw-dropping miracles that include convincing government leaders the world over that had never had a thought of working together so as to form a joint allied fighting force the likes of which the world has never known. The point is made that the entire inhabited world will commit troops to the battle and that this battle has to do with the great day of God, or the great day of the Lord. Now naturally, that's not what the huge army is going to call this. Rather, this great day of God, great day of the Lord, is just a biblical description of a time when God and the wicked of the earth are going to do battle just like the battle that already occurred in heaven that we saw back in Revelation chapter 12 this is now the earthly version of it that's coming and just like in 12, Revelation 12 the Lord will win evil will be vanquished the ending folks, ending's already been written the suddenness of the battle however is going to startle the world and so the worshippers of God, the God of Israel, are warned to be ready so that of all the people on our planet, we won't be caught unaware. And then in verse 16, for the first time, we hear about the famous or infamous Armageddon. Now actually, the word Armageddon is an English-sized version of the Greek. But in Hebrew it's highly likely that the word is Har Megiddo, which means hill of Megiddo. Now Megiddo can be visited today. It's been occupied, been an occupied city for millennia. In recent times it's only a tell, a mound. It's an archaeological site. That consists of about 25 layers of civilization. That is, one city is built, it's destroyed, then another city is built upon it, often using the rubble of the destroyed city. Each build, destruction, rebuild is called a layer or a strata. And on and on for centuries goes this same cycle. Of destruction and rebuilding. So Megiddo and cross section looks like a huge layer cake, but with 25 layers. Now, the reason this place is important is because of the strategic nature of its location that can view and defend the enormous breadbasket of Israel called the Jezreel Valley. Now it's usually said that here at Armageddon the armies of the kings of the east will do battle with God. However, I don't find that a satisfying answer. In no way do I find it credible that this vast combined army thinks that they are coming for some kind of a science fiction or spiritual experience where they war with ghost-like souls of martyred Christians and even winged angelic angels. The reason for their coming is to battle somebody for a very specific geopolitical reason. I have no doubt that somebody is the remnant of Israel. It is Going to be a battle of real people against real people. At least it is to the human mind and eye. We must always keep in view that Israel is at the center of God's plans, and that Israel is God's set apart people and nation, and Jerusalem is his holy city so Israel is where the action is and it shall remain so right through the end times that is the context of John's apocalypse and it will also be the context of the battle of Armageddon while I will not speculate as to the exact cause or the moment of that tipping point into conflict that sets off this war to end all wars Clearly, it's going to have something to do with the nation of Israel and whoever allies themselves with Israel, specifically, standing defiantly against the rest of the world that's given itself over to the government of the Antichrist. It's going to be a war between those who refuse to bow down and give allegiance to the Antichrist against those who have, and it's going to look like a slam dunk for the world's armies because they will outnumber Israel's forces thousands to one. But boy, are they in for a surprise! You know, so much as what has been said and taught concerning Armageddon is kind of comic book like. Really bugs me. And, and it, so it can become hard to come to grips with. So I want to tell you a short story. This says just how feasible is such a scenario as presented in Revelation. In 1973, the Venerable Goldemeyer was the Prime Minister of Israel. And on October 6th of that year, the combined armies of the Arab League launched a surprise attack on Israel on the day of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for for Jews. Now the Israeli Jews were woefully unprepared, their military underfunded, and they were on the verge of being overrun and pushed into the sea. Richard Nixon was in the White House at that time. And Henry Kissinger was his primary advisor on international matters. Well, when it looked as though there was no hope for Israel to win and survive, Goldham called together her cabinet and they discussed the unthinkable. By this time, Israel had developed a nuclear bomb. They did not have many that info is still classified it may have been as few as one maybe two but here lies the crux of the story Golda and her cabinet decided that if they were about to be completely overrun and the state of Israel would no longer exist that they would use their atom bomb or bombs on the most populated Arab targets they could manage wanting to kill as many Arab Muslims as possible. They knew this would not help them win. They also knew it would likely start World War III. Early on, not grasping the gravity of the situation, Nixon refused to help Israel. But in four or five days, with the Arabs taking ground quickly, Golda called Nixon and again asked, for immediate help, and that Israel would use the atom bomb if losing became inevitable. Nixon shifted his stance and he began airlifting military supplies to Israel. Now, had the Israelis used the bomb, many Jews would no doubt have been killed in reprisal as a result of their action the government would likely have been immediately executed by the enemy if not tried as war criminals in Europe and hung there but this time Israel was not going to march like lambs into the ovens they determined if they had a go as a people no longer exist as a viable nation that a lot of the world was going to go with them because without doubt the nuclear confrontation would spread the intervention of the USA turned the tide and a series of absolute miracles happened that allowed Israel to push out the Arab attackers and win so that terrible option that was just hours away never happened Now my intent of telling you this story is this. When the end times arrives, the only Israeli Jews and those standing with them that are determined to face this unstoppable army of the beast of Revelation 16 will probably mostly consist of believers. It will be people who know God's word sufficiently so they refuse to take on the mark of the beast. People who know their death is certain. And so even knowing they stand utterly no chance against the overwhelming forces of the Antichrist, Israel and their only remaining friends, believers, will fight trusting in what we're soon going to read in Revelation. That Messiah is going to show up and win an otherwise unwinnable war even though there's going to be great loss of life. And the still remaining non-believing Jews even they, they are not going to go as lambs into the ovens ever again. The content of John's Armageddon vision was probably just not imaginable to John in his era. Today, frighteningly, it is. And in fact, the mindset of the many Israelis I know from my many years of visiting Israel is not much different than gold to my ears. We're going to go ahead and finish up chapter 16 and the seventh bowl judgment next time. Thank you.